Well, welcome back, everybody, to the podcast for Cultural Reformation. We're back in the Knox Cellar today, and it's a special day today, actually, for us uh, on the podcast, because we've got some special guests with us. So, as usual, of course, Ryan Eris and Nathan Oblak uh, with me in the studio. But the last... Uh, Ryan's um, pumping his fists in the air. We have to describe that. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're not on video. Yes. <laughs> Behind the behind the uh, behind the curtain, these are the secrets. Uh, we have been in, engaged in the last couple of days with some programs here at the institute. Uh, so yesterday we had our Niagara Declaration conference on church, state, and the future of liberty, and we had a fantastic lineup of speakers, a packed house, and a wonderful time together. And today we began our pastors colloquium. Uh, where we have pastors and elders and leaders from different churches uh, around the country gathered for some thinking, some reflection on the implications of biblical world and life view for pastoral ministry in our current cultural environment. And so we wanted to take advantage, as we said on the last podcast, of the opportunity to speak to some of our guests and some of the, 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 the friends of the ministry that we've uh, are joining us for these few days. So first of all... Um, We've got uh, Pastor Tim Stevens in studio with us. He is the pastor of Fairview Baptist in Calgary, and he'll be known to some of you certainly for his bold stand in regard to uh, COVID regulations. And, uh, well, he's a bit of a jailbird too. We'll come to that in a moment. Um, But he did take off the striped pajamas for this show, and he's wearing a a normal sweater. And uh, and we also have... um, uh, Andre Schutten. He is, of course, uh, familiar to many of you. He is our fellow for law and civil discourse, not civil disobedience. Law for fellow for law, fellow for law and civil discourse at the institute. There, there might be a, a fellowship in civil disobedience opening up if Tim is, uh, is interested. <laughs> We'll see. And uh, he's also Director of Law and Policy at General and General Legal Counsel for ARPA Canada. That's the Association of Reform Political Action. So, Tim, welcome. Andre, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us for the podcast today. Tim, let me um, begin uh, with you. It's such a pleasure to have you here and, uh, and to, to, to have met you in person. We've interacted somewhat on uh, in various... Um, social media environments and also we did a, a television interview recently uh, together which will be broadcast soon um, but uh, this is the first time we've been able to connect in person you we're so glad you made the effort to come to the institute to be part of the program tim i think a lot of pastors have been uh, looking to you looking at your example looking at the um uh, the way you have uh, faithfully led your church community in very, very difficult circumstances in Calgary. Many of our listeners, though, um, who are across the pond um, in places as far flung as Australia and, 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 of course, in the United States, may not be familiar with what's actually happened to you as a, well, really now a prominent pastor in Canada, for better or worse, mm-hmm. uh, Infamous. In, uh, in, in, in leading your church. Um, can you uh, just tell us uh, tell us a bit of the story of, of of what happened to you as the pastor of Fairview Baptist and and why? Yeah, no, thanks, Joe, for having me, and uh, it's been a, such a pleasure to be here at the institute this week and to meet you guys in person. But the church I pastor in, in Calgary, Alberta, um, like most churches, when when COVID nineteen was on the news and uh, 
when restrictions came down, you know, we we went online and I was careful to tell our church that even in going online, that this was not a replacement for church. We knew then that online church was not a thing. And so I said, I would, I would address them, you know, from, from my basement actually. And I, I treated it almost like uh, Samuel Weatherford when he was away from his church, he would write letters to still shepherd his congregation. So I, I, I treated it as that, or maybe a prison letter from Paul to the church because we were hindered from being together. And so I was careful not to call my, even my addresses online a sermon as I stared into the camera because, in my opinion, the, the sermon involves not only the preacher, but also the congregation there, and there needs to be interaction. And so that went on for a few weeks, uh, but then you know it, my own spirit was hurting, not being with my people, and my people were also hurting it. And we, we knew there was something, something amiss because the, the apocalypse really hadn't taken place like they had predicted. Mm-hmm. And uh, a number of our folks in our church th- did the same thing. And after, after one Sunday staring into a camera, you know, giving, giving my address, I, I, just, I just wept, um, not being able to be with my people and, and really thinking, how, how, can, how can we then lead to um, gather together again? And, uh, and again, talking, talking to different members had the same, same opinion. And as I, as I considered, you know, how best to move forward at, at that time, the government was still preventing us from being together and uh, no one had got any fines or anything, but I, I took it upon myself to write a, an essay for our church membership and uh, about civil disobedience. And that uh, we looked at, you know, starting with first and foremost, very simply, Jesus is Lord, mm. right? It, ha- it has to start with the Lordship of Jesus Christ over everything. And once you understand that Jesus is Lord, he is, he is, of course, Lord over all, but he's especially Lord over his church. And, uh, and he calls the church to gather. He calls us to practice hospitality, to celebrate the ordinances, mm-hmm. you know, to pray for one another, to, to give each other a, a holy kiss or a hug, mm-hmm. warm fellowship. So um, talking about our need to do that, and then looking at how the people of God acted in, in Egypt, right? Whenever Pharaoh sought to restrict and regulate what God had commanded the people of, of Egypt to do and uh, how Moses continued to refuse and wanted to be faithful to God. And same thing we see with Daniel and the, the three Hebrew boys in, uh, in Babylon. And then also the Jews and Christians in Rome as they get getting conflicted with, with Caesar and his, his commands that they must obey God rather than men. So I sought to lay out the case and, and answer a number of objections that people had about, about the safety of it all. And uh, so and that was an essay I gave out last last May in 2020, and we had a congregational meeting near the end of May to discuss that, and the majority of the church was in support. We didn't have a vote or anything, um, but I, I wanted to hear from all of our members, and for those I didn't hear about in the meeting, I called afterwards, and the majority was in support, so we decided to, to meet together again. And so we were doing that through the summer of 2020 and into the fall. We weren't trying to make it a, a big political move, but rather to be faithful to the Lord. And, but over Christmas time, we received complaints because uh, restrictions kept getting tighter and tighter mm-hmm. over Christmas as case numbers were going up. And as restrictions were going tighter and we continued to meet, uh, I think we're only supposed to have 15 people allowed in a church service just to facilitate an online service. Uh, but our parking lot was full. And so mm-hmm. that tipped off people to complain about us. And so the police came one, one week early January and issued me a $1,200 ticket for not wearing a mask. And so my wife and I were like, well, that's, you know, that wasn't even a warning. They just came and gave a ticket. And then the next week they came and issued me a, a summons, which doesn't have a monetary value, but can be disguided by the judge and up to $100,000. And then that happened for the next few weeks as we continue to gather. And so I, I collected about six of those summons, wow. uh, six or seven. 
and uh, and they they realized then that you know we weren't we weren't going to stop. Uh, but of course, all that police attention uh, brought a lot of media attention, which then brought a lot of hatred and support from the community. But of course, the hatred seems to uh, seems to be louder uh, mm-hmm. in people's minds, and so a lot in our creating a lot of turmoil in our church through that time. And that, and that turmoil really continued in our church as we were struggling with how best to to shepherd some of the people who were in disagreement and, and deal with some of those internal battles. We weren't, we weren't united as even as elderships on, on how to proceed. But really what was the catalyst that really solidified our position was uh, in February, uh, James Coates, a friend of mine, a fellow pastor, just a few hours to the north, he was imprisoned uh, mm-hmm. for doing the same thing, for first gathering faithfully together as a church. And when he went to jail, it was, uh, it was a time in the period of our, of our church where, where I was convinced uh, no, no longer can we can we be squabbling internally about these issues, but we need to obey the Lord and and be open and, and be in support, especially of our brother who's in prison. Yeah. Um, we're commanded in Scripture uh, to, to do that thing. So we we started meeting again, and of course the authorities uh, were not pleased. They continued to monitor our services, but didn't really take action until in May. Um, actually, I was surprised because we're warm, others getting warmer, the cases are going down. But but in May they had issued a court order. Uh, for a number of groups in Alberta who were resisting these uh, mandates to, to, to cease um, gathering. But we continued, and so they actually put me in prison on May 16th. Me, uh, after church service, the police came and arrested me, uh, put me in jail for three days. But they had improperly served me that court order. They actually served it to somebody else. And so um, I was that, that contempt of court that I was charged with was dropped because of a technicality. And so what they decided to do to get us to stop after, after that was to uh, lock up our church building. And so they locked up our church at the beginning of June, which forced us to meet outside. And when we're meeting outside, uh, the limit in Alberta at that time was 10 for an outdoor gathering. For outside. For outside social gathering with, with zero risk of COVID outside. Um, but that was the rule at the time. And so we, we gathered outside. And, uh, and a complaint was made, and the police actually, there was reports of a police helicopter, you know, mm. discovering uh, our gathering. Um, and so the limit was 10. We had, we had hundreds. So they, uh, they came to my house on the Monday following one of those outdoor services and, uh, and arrested me. But before they uh, arrested me, before they came that day, uh, the prosecution actually called my own lawyer talking about the arrest. And so he had a, had a, he had a hand. He had, he had, a, had knowledge that uh, the arrest was going to take place, and so he was able to call uh, some local news, who was mm-hmm. able, able there to record it, so that the world has can now see that arrest and, and the interaction with the police. And so after that arrest, they they brought me to jail again, and I was in jail for eighteen days. So for my my two stints in jail for twenty one days in total, mm-hmm. and I I came out in that case because uh, the restrictions um, were dropped at the beginning of July which then meant our church was unlocked and I came out of jail. So at this point, um, I have, I have trial date set up in one in January for our church and, and, uh, one in May for myself, uh, to answer to all these public health act violations. And also the second time I went to jail, they actually decided to charge me criminally for, for violating that court order. So I have a criminal charge against pending. me pending. Um, and so the result of that, you know, we're not sure I'm not too confident in our, in our legal mm-hmm. system. Uh, to advocate, but I'm I'm convinced that uh, that I'm not a lawbreaker, but rather mm-hmm. operating within inside the bounds of our constitution and religious freedom that we're guaranteed here. 
So that's kind of the state of the matter. And this fall, as restrictions have returned again in Alberta, they have curiously left us alone mm-hmm. as we've continued to gather and uh, seek be faithful to the Lord. So um, in, in, in one sense, they're, they're likely thinking what they need to be doing on their end. But on, on my side, as a pastor, uh, Jesus is still Lord this mm-hmm. year like he was last year. And so we're going to be faithful and obey him. Mm-hmm. Tim, tell us then a little bit about... Um the the you mentioned there that the way you view this situation is not only i mean anybody who listens to you and i I listened to you expound romans 13 yesterday but anybody who hears you talk and hears you share has a chance to meet you immediately recognize would immediately recognize if they've any discernment a pastor a shepherd um you're not a rabble rouser um you're not a political philosopher trying to make uh, trying to make a political point. You, you, you're not uh, um, some sort of you've got no martyr complex. Uh, you're somebody for whom this issue was about the, your charge as a shepherd of the, the local church, the heart that you had for your people, the fact that they were suffering, your uh, the way you were distanced from them, your inability to to serve them as the Lord calls you to serve them. And you also, uh, you know, went forward with this, as you just said, with an understanding that actually you're upholding the law. So you've had your critics. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who stood up in this situation has had their critics. Uh, t- tell us just a little bit um, before I ask you a little bit about some of the experience in, in prison there. But uh, h- how, do you, how do you respond to those critics who've said, you know, you're a, you're a lawbreaker, you're not obeying Romans 13, you're... Um, you know, without putting you on the spot to give us the whole sermon again, but, you know, the, how do you respond to those who said, you know, this is just, this is irresponsible, this is not loving your neighbor. You must have heard this ad nauseum. Yeah. Um, just just speak to that. Yeah. For, for those who just throw mud, you know, you, you can't really have a response to them. You know, there's a lot of people that throw vitriol out there. Um, but what I try to do is, is lead our congregation because not only was this being mentioned by the critics, but our own church was wrestling through these Mm -hmm. issues, right? Um, Because I'm not sure how many emails I got with Romans 13 in it uh, (laughs) from other Christians concerned about what we were doing. And so we had to answer answer those questions. And so I sought to, as, as, you know, mass mandates came down, as as gathering limits were reduced, uh, continue to try to write to our church to to coach them through those things. And and it gave us a good opportunity as we dig into a text like Romans 13 to understand what it really means, because it's not just a simplistic obey your government no matter what. Mm-hmm. You know, what does it actually say? It talks about living in submission to our governing authorities, um, but it also talks about, uh, you know, the function of those governing authorities, what they're supposed to be doing and what they're not supposed to be doing. And, uh, and of course, the Bible also talks about, you know, when resistance to those governing authorities is called for. Mm-hmm. And it's not just called for when they forbid the preaching of the gospel, which is what the most common mm-hmm. conception is. You know, uh, not even in Nazi Germany was preaching of the gospel forbidden. In fact, right. that was all you could do, right? Mm-hmm. You couldn't speak about the lordship of Christ. You was a very narrow, truncated version of the gospel you were allowed to speak. That's right. So, mm-hmm. so Caesar doesn't mind if you have a very narrow, truncated gospel. Mm-hmm. But Peter... In Acts 5, he actually got into trouble because he was talking about the supremacy of Christ. He was talking about him being exalted on his throne, him being called leader, ruler, prince. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was that that, of course, got severe opposition. Then he said, I must obey God rather than men. Not much mm-hmm. preach the gospel rather than not, but, but I need to obey God. Yeah. And so Romans 13 doesn't mean that we disobey God mm-hmm. in order to obey the civil magistrate. You yeah. know, 
always obey God first. And when we obey God, that is love, you know, because obedience to God and, and faithfulness to his law mm-hmm. is a loving thing to do. So the, the, the first table of the commandments is, is our expression of our love towards God. The second table is our expression of love towards fellow man. Mm-hmm. And as we fulfill the law of God, uh, we are doing what's, what's most loving. And, and you mentioned a pastor's heart because when people have come to our fellowship, you know, they, they come and they haven't worshiped God as they desire for maybe six months, maybe 12 months, maybe even 18 months. Mm-hmm. And they come in and they join with us and they begin to weep. They begin to break down. Um, you know, j- just, just being together with God's people and worshiping God as they've, as they've been called to worship, mm-hmm. it, it, it makes you overjoyed for them and makes you lament Mm-hmm. how their shepherds have hindered them from worshiping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it breaks my heart to hear stories of, of people essentially imprisoned in their own churches mm-hmm. from obeying the Lord by, by their shepherds mm-hmm. who are called to lead them to love and obey the Lord. When you speak about Peter there in the book of Acts, I'm reminded also of Acts 7 where the apostle Paul is uh, in the early part of Acts, sorry, Acts 17, the early part of Acts 17. Uh, where the Apostle Paul is speaking about another king, Jesus. Uh, and the charge against Paul is uh, he's disobeying the decrees of Caesar because he's saying there is another king, Jesus. And this is why he was, they were arrested and they were being held in Jason, uh, the, and they were at Jason's house and they were dragged out and so on. It was actually the proclamation of the kingship of Christ mm-hmm. that got them into trouble with the authorities. And of course, we would argue that is, of course, central to the full-orbed preaching of a comprehensive gospel, not the sort of narrow, truncated, personal forgiveness of my soul going to heaven. But this is about the, the fullness of the gospel that you've been upholding, and actually that's what's gotten you into trouble. I was also reminded when you were speaking, because you mentioned Moses and the Israelites, how uh, when Moses first goes to Pharaoh with Aaron, and he, and he makes that initial demand in Exodus chapter 5, it's about, he says, let my son go, that, that this is what God says you to tell him, let my son go, that he may serve me, he may worship me, that this is so important that God is given the worship that he's due. And the response of Pharaoh is to uh, punish the Israelites, not Moses and Aaron directly, but punish the Israelites by saying, right, you're going to make the same number of bricks, but you're going to collect your own straw now. You're not going to, we're not going to give you the straw as we've done before. Uh, you have to produce the same quota of bricks and you can gather your own straw. And the response of the people to that, interestingly enough, was to try and negotiate with Pharaoh to have better terms for slavery. They didn't stand with Moses and Aaron. They said, you know... They grumble against Moses and Aaron they for that. Precisely. They blame Moses and Aaron for... Uh, for what happened. Uh, so they... They turned on the Lord's prophets and says, now look what you've done. By standing up, you've made things worse for us. Uh, Now the government doesn't like us. Now Pharaoh doesn't like us. We just want slightly better terms for servitude. And this whole situation kind of, uh, and what you went through there sort of reminds me of that, uh, that, uh, you know, the people who've often stood up like a Moses and Aaron said, let my son go to worship me and serve me. Much of the Christian community has, has turned on them and said, now look what you've done. And instead, we've negotiated for better terms right. of servitude. So the implication of that for you, Tim, was you ended up in prison for three weeks, basically. Um, how did you cope with that time in prison? You know, I think sometimes we hear stories from, you know, uh, China 
and you read books like The Heavenly Man and there's angels and, you know, there's God's intervention. And, uh, you know, I read, remember growing up as a boy, the stories of Vanya in the Soviet Union and the way, you know, and miracles. And of course, it's marvelous when you read those stories. But um, being taken away as people who saw the video of you, uh, your children crying, being taken away from your own home, put in a paddy wagon, taken off to jail as a pastor, obeying the law, upholding the Constitution, serving your people. Um, now you're facing criminal charges and you spent time in prison. How did you deal with that time in prison? Did you feel the nearness of the Lord? Did you have opportunity to witness? Just tell, I'm sure people would be interested to know what was it like to be arrested and to be put in prison as a Christian pastor? How were you treated? What were those interactions like? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to describe it because sure. it's something that I asked James Coates too, uh, because I knew it might happen to me, but it's really... It's really hard to communicate unless you're there, right? It's like it's like when you go to battle, uh, you can't necessarily communicate that to other men who aren't soldiers. But the best way I could maybe picture it is is imagine if you if you are taken from your context. You know, a family man. We have eight children. You know, a pastor, and you're always found with people. You know, and and take someone from that context, and then and then put them in a foreign country where they don't know the language, they don't know the culture, and then it's like go survive. Because when you go to jail, it is it is a complete culture shock. You just have no idea what you're up against. You have no idea how the inmates will treat you, how the guards will treat you. You don't know when the next meal is. Um, you sometimes don't even know what time it is. You know, you're just in a cement box, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, it was, it was emotionally and mentally challenging to be in that kind of environment. Um, but when I, was, when I was first in jail, so the first three days were actually the, the hardest in jail um, rather than the 18 days that I served later. But in, in those days, um, I just was remembering, I even told my wife on the phone too, that I had an opportunity to talk to her, is uh, you know the sufferings of our Lord Christ, mm-hmm. to remember his sufferings for us. And now he was, he not only suffered for us, but that he suffered injustice. Mm-hmm. And, and even worse than being in jail is being in jail unjustly. Yeah. And so to, to sit in there when you know that you did nothing wrong and you were serving the Lord and, um, and, and for, for lies, that you're in there, um, that was painful. But to remember the Christ and His love and what He suffered through uh, helped. And as, as so time went on, especially my second imprisonment, I did have an opportunity to speak with some of the inmates there. There was a bit of COVID quarantine, so I was around six guys at start. But then I was in a pod where you know there's probably about thirty guys that you have time during the day to be be out and interact with. And every single one, there was not one person in prison, one one other. Um, prisoner uh, who was ever mean to me. Mm-hmm. In fact, they were all were very respectful. Um, either they recognized me and, and came to talk to me or, or word spread that, that the pastor was here. And so they called me pastor. <laughs> they called me preacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, they came to me for counsel because many of these men um, have lived very difficult lives. Like many of them have grown up without a father. I don't, yeah. I, I don't know any of them that had a father there. Many of them were on drugs since they were 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. And so they, they were essentially boys. And uh, they didn't know what it meant to be a man. Um, many of them had professed faith because they had been through different Christian programs and uh, with a truncated view of the gospel. So many yes. of them thought they were Christians. And so to be able to explain to them uh, about, about the, the word of God and what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ was neat. So I had many opportunities to, to share those things with them. And, and one neat experience was one of my, one of my inmates, he, he brought me a book from out in the public area. There's a few books out there and, and the books are all garbage, but he brought it in and says, can you read this to me? Because 
Uh, he smoked his first joint when he was four years old. His mm-hmm. parents were hell's angels, and he's been in drugs all his life. And so you couldn't read. Mm-hmm. So he goes, you know, Pastor, can you read this book for me? I'm like, I'm not going to read that book for you, but I'll read you the, read you the Bible if you want. He goes, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. And so I had an opportunity. I, I opened up the Gospel of Mark because I had recently preached through that. And so I, I read a few chapters and explained it to him. And I, I said, do you want me to stop? He goes, no, continue. And so I read the entire Gospel to him and explained it to him. And, and it was neat. And uh, he really appreciated that. He appreciated the letters that I was receiving. And so it was a great opportunity to be able to communicate the truth of God's Word um, and as I'm ministering to others, of course, you're also built up in the faith. And yeah. uh, during those 18 days, I've never had more opportunity to read scripture and to pray uh, as I did, because you are you have nothing else um, mm-hmm. to do. And uh, so it was great. So, so the Lord strengthened me. That's my prayer each and every day. Lord, mm-hmm. give me strength to mm-hmm. persevere. When, when, um, so I, when I first became a lawyer, my first year, I actually practiced criminal defense work. And uh, a lot of Christians actually would tell me, uh, I'm not sure a Christian should be a defense lawyer. I mean, like, uh, you're really uncomfortable with the idea back then. But I think in the last 18 months or so, a lot of yeah. Christians have changed their mind on that point. But I, I did get opportunity many times to end up in a remand center in, in Ottawa, in the city of Ottawa. And and also, I think a false um, stereotype is that, oh, Canadian jails are like pretty good. It's pretty plush and they treat you really well. And I mean, Canadian jails are a whole lot better than uh, you know, the Mexican hole in jail. Yeah, sure. Or the hole in the ground that a, a Christian in, in Roman times might've been uh, dropped into, but they are not pleasant places. Like they, it's like you said, concrete cells with metal bars and, and that's it. It's, right. it's a very uh, isolating place. So I, I, I can still only imagine uh, mm-hmm. what that experience would have been like for, for 18. But how did days. the guards treat you? The prisoners treated me better than the guards. In right. fact, there, there's not much interaction you have with the guards. They tend to stay behind this this bubble and they control, you know, the lot of cells with, with buttons and over the intercom. So there's not too much interaction. But most of the interaction I did get with them um, was, was very short, very brief. Um, there was there was one opportunity with, uh, with a gentleman where he was talking about, there was a rally outside the jail actually one Saturday and he asked if that was for me. And, and I said, well, in part, I'm like, these people are there because of the Lordship of Christ and, uh, and because of our, of our God-given right to, to, to worship Him. Mm. Um, but for the most part, the guards were, were really curious of why, why I was even there. One, one even suggested to me, why don't you just do a parking lot service? You know, and you feel, you feel like saying, well, I never thought of that. But um, <laughs> it was hard to communicate to them you know, exactly because no, they had no convictions like that. Yeah. You know? right. They couldn't, couldn't relate. Now, Tim, you mentioned that you were uh, unjustly imprisoned. Of course, we agree with you, but uh, Canadian media certainly did not. And I quickly pulled up a CBC article released uh, last May, shortly after uh, your arrest. And uh, for our American friends, uh, the CBC is our state-funded media corporation. But the headline for the article was, Calgary pastor arrested after breaking pandemic gathering rules for months with a byline of the pastor of Fairview Baptist Church in Southeast Calgary, has been arrested after months of encouraging congregants to break COVID-19-related public health rules. I wonder if you could interact with uh, the way you felt things were, uh, things were illustrated by the Canadian media. Yeah, I think what you mentioned there, Nathan, is similar to what, what Joe, you're mentioning about the people in Egypt and how they blame Moses and Aaron for for how essentially the government, Pharaoh, was viewing them because of, 
of Moses and Aaron's response towards them. And that was probably the biggest issue I dealt with was this idea of witness or testimony. And so it's, you know, when the media writes about my imprisonment or by my arrest, they, they portray it in such a way that here is a lawless individual who, who doesn't care about anybody uh, but, but himself and, uh, and his own rights. And he's not realizing we're in a, we're in a pandemic and, and people's lives are at risk. And so when, when Christians hear that, they say, well, that's a terrible witness because look, the world doesn't like the church. Um, but it's helpful to remember that, uh, of course, the world doesn't like the church. Mm-hmm. You know, this has just provided the world a reason to say what they always wanted to say about the church. Um, Maybe we've forgotten what Jesus said. The world hated me. It's going to hate you as well. That's right. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And, uh, and, and our testimony and our witness is not something that the world would, would like because they look at us and say, well, you guys are lovely. And so because you're so nice, I think I'll, I'll like Jesus too. Mm-hmm. They look at us and they see people and our witness, our testimony is that we are obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That's the testimony that we ought to have. And so I'm, I'm not surprised that the, uh, that the news would say such a thing um, because it, it's not based on what they say that dictates yeah. our actions. It's what the Lord God would say. Um, Andre, I mean, you've, you're familiar with this story. You're familiar with what's gone on with a number of, uh, of pastors. You know about the fines in Ontario as well, very heavy uh, punitive fines and so on. Now, some of our, our listeners in, in England and in the United States um, are going to be pretty shocked by what they're hearing. I mean, the, the, the UK government, uh, in England anyway, very quickly backed off uh, the beginning of this year an attempt to uh, a thought of locking down the church. Just the threat of a possible legal action had them back away. And then there was a fairly landmark case in Scotland. 27 pastors brought a case and, and uh, the, 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 the lockdown of the church in Scotland was illegal and they won the case. Uh, we've seen sort of multiple small victories in the United States. And you start telling these stories in these other jurisdictions and they can barely believe this is Canada. I mean, isn't Canada, doesn't it share a constitutional history with with England? Uh, isn't it really similar to the United States in these historic liberties? Um, help us and help our, our listeners understand a bit, a couple of things. First, um, what does this say at the moment about how our own constitution is being understood? And then perhaps we can explore a little bit as well where these things might be going mm-hmm. in terms of um, religious freedom, freedom of conscience in in Canada. Where, mm-hmm. where, this, where what we're seeing right now with cases like uh, Pastor Tim's, um, where is it pointing? Mm-hmm. So, but let's, let's start with, just help us a bit with the constitution and where mm-hmm. this is coming from. Yeah. Well, I mean, first I'd, I'd interact with what you've observed in other jurisdictions. It, it, and you said it might be shocking for people in England and, and, and uh, the United States of what's happening in Canada because of what's happening in many other jurisdictions that are uh, similar in their legal structure, constitutional structure to Canada. I, I, I actually find that many Canadians, Christians in Canada are shocked that actually Canada is an outlier when it comes to a lot of the development of law around unjust lockdowns of churches that in fact, the United States, Scotland, England, France, which is a very secular country, uh, Germany, high courts in all of these countries have ruled that lockdowns of churches are are excessive. They're over the top. Um, It's actually Canada uh, that's, that's been an outlier so far where, where 
the chief justice in Manitoba, chief justice in, in BC have, have ruled that excessive lockdowns include, including an absolute prohibition on corporate worship, properly understood, uh, that that's reasonable in the circumstances. It's Canada that's the outlier, uh, mm-hmm. not not the other countries. And most Canadians actually don't understand that because they don't read the international news. I hope Canadian pastors are listening to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but 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 to, to interact with your question about uh, trying to understand the Canadian constitution. Yeah, so we have in Canada, we have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It was added to our constitution. So that means it's the highest law in the country. All other laws, including executive orders, public health orders, and so on, must comply with the Charter, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And that Charter does include, in fact, a list of our fundamental freedoms, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, which would mean the physical gathering together of people together, and freedom of association. In fact, those same fundamental freedoms that we see in the Charter are also reflected in in most international human rights instruments. They are recognized in the international community as fundamentally, quintessentially human rights. They're human rights. And so... Um, so the, the first reading would be, and I think most, most Christians that are concerned about the lockdowns, they'd say, see, look, fundamental freedoms, these have been violated. End of the story, right? This is unconstitutional. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. And I'll try that, tease that out right now. So, so yes, that's the first step. So, so are there um, infringements on charter rights? Yes. In fact, the governments have been happy to admit that. So mm-hmm. in, in court in BC, I was in court in BC, I was in, in court in, in Manitoba on church lockdown cases. And in both cases, the government's like, yeah, we admit that we are infringing freedom of religion and freedom of peaceful assembly. But they say there's another, there's the next step. And this next step in a charter analysis or a constitutional analysis is the section one test. So section one sets out, uh, it's actually titled the guarantee clause. It's supposed to guarantee our rights, but, but it's become, and it's certainly developed into the reasonable limits clause. And so basically it says that the fundamental freedoms that are listed and, and the other legal rights that are listed further in the charter, they're all subject to such reasonable limits as are prescribed by law that can be justified in a free and a democratic society. And so the courts, the Supreme Court of Canada has developed a test around that already back in the 1980s. And, and, and it's a, supposed to be a pretty rigorous test that the government must pass. It's the government that has to pass the test. They have to prove that, that in fact, their restrictions, their, their violations or, or infringements on charter rights are justified, that they, they're necessary in a free society, uh, that they're necessary um, uh, in the circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, but, but what's happened is that, um, certainly in, in the age of COVID, is that so far anyway, and there's been a number of different COVID-related cases that have gone to court now in the last 20 months. And, and to my knowledge, every single one of them has failed. The government has always won at the trial level. And it's because, in, in my opinion, I've got to be careful here because I have professional obligations to be very respectful to the courts. But, but in, in my opinion, if, if I may be so bold, is, I'd say that, that many judges are uh, very cautious of um, pushing back on the expertise, mm-hmm. using air quotes here, mm-hmm. expertise <laughs> of the public health uh, officers. Public health officer probably has a medical degree and they're surrounded by a team of other bureaucrats that probably also have medical degrees. And so the judge is like, well, if I, if I rule that this is unreasonable, then, then there's this expectation that I need to weigh in on the medical evidence. So on. don't really want to do that. Want don't want to be setting myself up against the expertise of the public health officer versus a, a, a crazy right wing Baptist pastor on the other hand. Right. So in the weighing of the balance, 
they lean towards the medical, they defer to, there's a lot of deference to the expertise of the medical health officer. My, my beef with that is we don't go to court for medical expertise. We go to court for a legal ruling, a, a, a mm-hmm. judicial ruling, a, a ruling on justice about is it reasonable in, in the circumstances, all, all things considered. So does that have a kind of technocratic character then, frankly? Yeah, I, I would think that's a good way of, of describing it, Joe. I think, I think that that's the kind of thing that we're seeing development. And it's been developing. It's a trend that's been developing for a while now. It's been a concern of other constitutional scholars, but it's accelerated in the last two years, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well, help us with the... Oh, uh, go ahead, Brian. No. I was just going to say, I... Uh, Without wanting to be a rabble rouser, I have no such professional obligation. I don't know, Andre, if you and I have ever talked about uh, Star Trek, but uh, <laughs> Joe, Joe is probably familiar. While you were, while you were speaking there, there's a, there's a scene in Next Generation. I tweeted where, the scene recently, I think. Was this about Q? Oh, no, a different one. Go oh, ahead. Okay. Uh, Q, Q is this sort of demigod-like being in Next Generation. And he keeps on, like, popping into the Enterprise and meddling with uh, the affairs going on. And Captain Picard gets frustrated with him because he's got a ship to run. And he loses it on cue. He's like, what what gives you the right to come and meddle in the affairs of me and my crew and my ship? And he just sort of stands there. Superior morality. (laughs) And... That's a good scene. It is a good. Anyway, I'm just uh, as you're describing uh, these these tests, Andre, and the the way that they often go in terms of court decisions. This kind of scene uh, obviously comes to mind, but uh, I'm just I'm reminded of the uh, the old expression that uh, on the one hand the objection you can't legislate morality, mm. and then the rejoinder of well, actually morality is the only thing you can legislate mm-hmm. you're you're going to legislate in terms of somebody's morality yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely i mean i've tried to make that case to i mean every every law that's passed is a moral document the tax code is a moral document right and and certainly the um the, the judgments of the courts uh to date especially as it relates to the worship of the one true god uh by by the bride of christ uh week after week as as he's invited them to and called them to uh, those are going to be weighty moral questions, um, mm. so that definitely can't be separated from it as well. Like, I, I don't, I just don't see. Well, we we have a historical example of this, right? So, uh, actually, earlier today, um, somebody was reading from Martin Luther, uh, our, our friend Mike Teeson, who's yep. been on this podcast, I'm sure before. Um, so he was reading a letter from from Martin Luther during the plague, uh, where where he addresses the question: Should do Christians have a right to flee from the plague? And, and, and I'm always amused by us referencing that today, because I think if a Christian living during the bubonic plague were standing here today, he would laugh in our face. Like, you call this a plague? Like, let me yeah. tell you, when yeah. I was young and yeah. I was your age, yeah. let me tell you what a plague did. Like the four Yorkshiremen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, like, it killed one in three people. Like, like, yeah, like, right. like it, it was a devastating plague, and it, kill, it killed indiscriminately when it came to age. Young children, that's working right. class, uh, as, as well as seniors. Um, today, this plague, this plague is it doesn't hold a candle to the nope. to, to the the weight and severity of the bubonic plague. And yet, Martin Luther said mm-hmm. civil magistrates and pastors were not allowed to flee the plague. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so so 
the comparison is is a is a terrible one in my opinion. But we, but we've had a, a more recent example a hundred years ago with the Spanish flu, mm-hmm. and and there was a lockdown at that time. But but and this is key, and it's actually an argument I tried to bring in using modern legal language into the courts in our in our interventions there. But what happened during the Spanish uh, flu in the 1918, 1919, um, was that the relationship between church and state was such that the civil magistrate didn't demand and pass an order and require the church to lock down. Rather, the civil magistrate, and there's documented evidence of this from Washington, D.C., for example, they requested the leaders of the church and said, there's a plague going on, there's a pandemic going on, would you please consider Mm -hmm. closing down? And so the pastors, the leaders of the churches in the city of Washington, D.C., met together uh, in person, not over Zoom, and they discussed uh, together, and their response was an official response to the civil magistrate saying, we've heard your humble request and we gladly uh, uh, have decided to to close our churches for the next three weeks, something like that. And it was a dialogue between two institutions that respected each other. Mm-hmm. And that's not at all what we have now. I, I like to remind uh, many Christians because they've forgotten this. I've heard some Christians say churches just don't aren't responsible enough and can't be trusted to deal with a, a pandemic like this. Well, it's simply true, uh, untrue. The first people who acted, the first institution that acted in early March were churches. I yeah. saw churches uh, close themselves before the, the, the province ordered them to yeah. close. That, 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 that's happened in a variety of jurisdictions. But that's very interesting, the, 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 the illustration from the, the Spanish flu, mm-hmm. uh, Andre, which, again, was far more deadly and was, was hitting much younger people as well. Mm-hmm. But it was, and this I, I was having a discussion with a lawyer today about this, that uh, it's been the assumption of the state, you know, back to Ryan's point about superior morality mm-hmm. and also the technocratic character now of the state, is that it wasn't, in this case that you're describing, unilateral. It right. wasn't indefinite. And there wasn't an assumption that the sole jurisdiction over public health belonged right. to the state. We can acknowledge that the state has an interest, yeah. and I would say a limited external interest mm-hmm. in public health. But um, this attempt to make it uh, uh, both extensive and internal, to start trying to dictate the worship yeah. of the church, like Tim's church, masks, and um, the, the, the numbers of people you can have into a room, and mm-hmm. the, this indefinite character of saying, well, here's our emergency orders, that's the law. I said to this gentleman today too that the very fact that you need to have invoke, the state needs to invoke these emergency powers or emergency legislations immediately indicates to us that it recognizes actually it's stepping beyond its ordinary responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a fascinating uh, illustration that you gave there of this, um, as the Puritans used to say, that Moses and Aaron go together from Exodus 4, 5 and kiss one another at the Mount of God, the civil magistrate, the priest, mm. right? right? Nor uh, the, 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 the priesthood and the civil magistrate go together and they, they kiss one another, they greet one another at the Mount of God. So the problem we're dealing with now actually has a religious root, as you said in the course. There is no neutrality. Legislation is moral. Mm-hmm. And it, it's being, this whole situation seems to me being driven by who our God actually is. Yeah. And we're seeing that the, the church 
is being regarded now simply as little different from the yacht club, mm-hmm. from the chess club, mm-hmm. from the from the uh, uh, the local Rotary Club, whatever it might be. It's just a, 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 a association mm-hmm. of people who are club members. Yeah. It's not seen as having any greater significance or weight than that. But I have to say, in England, you know, even the former Prime Minister Theresa May gets up in the House and says, "No, look, what you may want to do." Uh, in in the name of um, the public good here, uh, because you think you're actually being a help. I'm not quoting verbatim, but this is what she was saying. Um, CAD could be used in the future for for evil, malevolent purposes. There's a principle mm-hmm. at stake here. Mm-hmm. In light of what you've said, and you're a lawyer, you're in the courts. You've I've seen you brilliantly uh, intervene, even at the Supreme Court. I've watched your uh, um, interactions there. Um, what is the trajectory? As you, you've described the constitutional situation, mm-hmm. we've got things like Bill C-6 coming down the pipe. We've had a lot of past to say, this is not the one we're on. You know, what Tim's doing, this is not the hill to die on. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, and, and they tell us that, well, maybe when the, 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 uh, the anti-conversion therapy bill or Bill C-36 then we'll be ready to stand. I'm, I'm not convinced, but when we look at these uh, this, the legislation that's coming down in Canada, mm-hmm. and you look at the constitutional situation, what do you see ahead for the church? What what are the without putting you on the spot and saying you're the prophet or the son of a prophet? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, <laughs> what 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 are your concerns? Let's yeah. put it that way, yeah. more measured sense about um, the future in in Canada. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the the two decisions that have been released by judges as it relates to church lockdowns. And, and this speaks to what Pastor Tim's concern was, what, what caused him to weep early in the year last year, um, was that neither of the judgments recognize, and they don't even use the word spiritual, the spiritual health of, of human beings. Like, like it's totally absent from their decision. They, they, they look only at the, the physical. Um, they look at biotic health, um, and they don't, they don't recognize. I mean, they, there's some recognition, there's some emotional and uh, psychological impact of lockdowns, but don't really give it the weight it deserved, and and certainly a total uh, lack of recognition of spiritual health. So, so there's in our judicial system, at, at least so far, there's there's a lack of understanding of what it even means to be human, and mm-hmm. so that so that that's a major problem. That's a really big problem. Right. Um, how, how can you be a, a a judge of human rights when you don't know what a human being is? Uh, not not the whole aspect of of, of uh, a human being, uh, so there's a problem, and and I think that um, that that's a, a f- there's I have some foreboding about about the future. I maybe I'm I, I've been accused of being a bit overly optimistic. So so both the case in BC and in Manitoba are are going to be appealed. There's plans to appeal those. Mm-hmm. The court of appeal in BC has been quite reasonable on many different cases. For example. On, on euthanasia, on the Trinity Western case. In both cases, they ruled in, in a way that I thought was thoughtful and just. Um, they were overturned on both instances by the Supreme Court of Canada itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but So, so I'm, I'm optimistic that in the BC case, we might actually get a decent judgment out of the uh, BC Court of Appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we'll have to wait and see. A lot of effort and work and prayer needs to go into that. But like you said, there's, there's other things coming down the road now, though, uh, federal hate speech legislation and mm-hmm. certainly even more concerning is the conversion therapy ban that's coming that 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 defines conversion therapy intentionally i think uh, very intentionally because of the comments from the justice minister in in prime minister trudeau's cabinet 
uh, have, have made me believe that this is very much intentionally. It's been intentionally defined conversion therapy to include pastoral counseling. They, they want to uh, target that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if anyone has been paying attention closely to the political language around this, this issue and other issues over the last even just five years, it's, it's, part, it's a part of a bigger plot, um, a, a bigger narrative, right? Because because if you can pass a criminal ban, and so that's the other thing, this is not a regulation. Yeah. This is not some you know um, a minor change in, in in a provincial statute somewhere. This is criminal law, the most blunt uh, sledgehammer in the tool shed of the federal government. You can't get a more uh, drastic change in, in in law. It's it's the most powerful uh, tool in the federal government's tool shed. So it's going to criminalize with a penalty of up to five years in prison. So uh, Pastor Tim just talked about 21 days in prison. We're looking now at five years in prison for those found guilty for pastorally counseling a child or a teenager who's struggling with questions of sexual ethics mm-hmm. and, and personal identity, uh, which, which scripture gives clear answers to, and, and, and not just answers to, uh, genuine help to, right? Like th- these are questions of, of, of deep angst, and, and these are existential questions, questions that, that are coming out of a deep longing to understand who, who am I? How should I live in relation to other people? And how did God create me, me to be? And so on. And, and a pastor, by the grace of God, has the answer in a, in a book called The Holy Bible, The Word of God. And, and the pastor has been gifted an opportunity and a calling, actually, to minister to these kinds of people, people that have wrestling with these questions. Mm-hmm. And, and the federal government says, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. And parents, too, who Go. might dare to bring their child to their pastor who's, say, 15-year-old son or daughter. Yeah, correct. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and this is all rooted in a, in a particular sexual ethic and a, and, and a philosophy around, around sexual ethics in particular that's, that, that's completely unmoored from reality and certainly from Scripture. Um, so so that, that direction is, is going. And, and because it's an amendment to the criminal law, you can imagine that if that's passed into law and if a pastor like let's say Pastor Tim sitting next to me here, were to counsel a teenager and that were to be reported to the police and the police were to investigate. Even if Pastor Tim were to be exonerated at trial because a trial judge says, you know what, this is interfering in religious freedom a little bit more than I'm comfortable with or uh, freedom of, of personal autonomy on the part of the teenager for Pete's mm-hmm. sake. If, if a teenager can can choose to have sex with whomever, surely he can also have the autonomy to choose counseling on the same mm-hmm. issue, right? Mm-hmm. You'd, you'd think. Um, but so even if, if Pastor Tim were exonerated, I mean, first of all, the process is the punishment. Right. I mean, you're still looking down, uh, Pastor Tim, you're looking down the, the road at, at at least another half year of legal wrangling and maybe more. Um, that's, that's exhausting. It's weighing on your heart and your mind. It's distracting you from uh, from your other callings. And, and, and I can imagine that weighs on you. Um, all the more so if it's uh, if it's a big criminal uh, offense that might carry a, a five year sentence. So so there's that. But there, there's other implications. I mean, will the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, continue to give charitable status to a to a church that has a pastor that's been criminally charged for mm-hmm. conversion therapy? I mean, rightly the CRA yanked uh, charitable status from a mosque in in Montreal for publishing uh, hate speech about uh, Jews and homosexuals. Um, they pulled charity stat, charitable status there, rightly so, uh, because that that mosque and an imam there uh, was breaking the criminal law. But if we now include pastoral counseling as a criminal offense, are we going to start seeing faithful churches penalized in this way? So those are some of the things that that, that I think are, are already on the horizon 
and and I'm not talking decades away. I'm I'm talking within within a few years. Yeah. If I may, too, Andre, you talked about you know the one of the issues of the court and the judge was was deferring to the government, deferring to the health experts, and sadly, it's the same thing we've seen in the church mm. where pastors are deferring their their role to shepherd their congregation according to the word of God and saying, well, actually the health experts are going to tell us mm-hmm. how we ought to worship. And because this is a matter of public safety, and so they're the experts. But when you read the preamble to Bill C-6, it says that conversion therapy needs to be legislated and, and, and added to the criminal code because of a matter of public safety. Mm-hmm. They're using the same mm-hmm. tool. Mm-hmm. And so how is a pastor then going to say, well, okay, I need to speak into conversion therapy and this is a hill to die on because the scriptures speak about that. Well, the scriptures also speak about, you know, when there's a, a deadly disease or when there's an infectious disease and, and how we ought to gather. So, so the Bible speaks to everything and pastors need to realize that and stop, stop passing the buck like, like judges are doing and, uh, and lead their people, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and yeah. speaking to the, uh, the, the fascinating thing in, in one respect, uh, in terms of the religious root of this that you've, You've, you've mentioned there in passing is that this 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 bill c6 it's, it'll be given a new number and yeah. be quickly passed through the 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 house now uh, with the ndp liberal alliance um it is that uh, the religious character of it is explicit in the fact that the the direction is one way yeah, so yeah. it's really actually a, it's not really an, a conversion therapy ban it's a conversion ban it's actually an anti-conversion law because what it says is correct me if i'm wrong uh um, andre i think you've expounded on this before but if um uh a young person were to come to you and say they they're they they've got um gender dysphoric feelings or they've got experiencing homosexual attraction and you counsel them to um, pursue that, to pursue homosexual porn, um, to uh, pursue uh, 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 sex change surgery, hormone therapies. The Sp- government... Explore and experiment and go... go and do all yeah. of that as a minor. That's perfectly legal. Yeah. And that's that can be encouraged to counsel in the anti-normative direction. The sanction comes in only if you dare to say to that person, um, uh, who may even be asking for this council yeah. uh well this is what the word of god says this is the nature of male and female this is what is god's best for your life this is how you can learn to walk in that yeah. uh it's that 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 even the notion of calling somebody to repentance from a sinful lifestyle to put their hope and their trust and faith in christ who is able to transform and change even our desires by the power of the holy spirit yeah. that's what's being made criminal am i wrong no yeah you're absolutely right i, I wrote a article um on on exactly this i mean we rightly condemn the the anti-conversion laws in 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 pakistan or in india India or um or Myanmar or elsewhere um from whether it's hinduism to to christianity or from islam to christianity or from buddhism to christianity but we're doing the same thing here in canada except we we don't recognize the religion as as much it's more it's it's masked but the religion is pagan secular humanism and and that religion has a particular view of sexual ethics and, and what it means to be human, as does every other religion, by the way. Mm-hmm. And and so when when we preach the gospel to somebody, uh, and that gospel has implications for all of life, as we profess and believe, then, then when it touches on one aspect of life that the pagan culture, the pagan religion of our, uh, the, the dominant pagan religion of our culture has a different view on, that's when they say, oh, oh, we better use the moral law, the criminal law, to, to restrict that, to stop that, to prevent that from happening. 
Yeah. So it is, and it's definitely one, one directional. I mean, it actually discriminates against the LGBTQ community in, in a very direct way, because as, as a friend of mine, a Christian, but a, a man who has same sex attraction, as he has said, why is it that men my age who are heterosexual get to have all the whole range of help available to them when it comes to, to um, social workers or psychologists or, or pastoral counselors, if they're struggling with a sexual issue, mm -hmm. but I don't get the full range of options and neither does anybody else who's in the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. It's only for LGBTQ um, individuals where the federal government has said, we will determine what choices and options you have for yeah. pastoral counseling or, or any sort of counseling. It's actually pretty remarkable. I'm surprised that there's not more people have been outspoken on this. There is a few um, at, at the Justice Committee actually uh, last year when, when or earlier this year when when this bill was up for debate um, in the previous parliament, there was a, a, a gay outspoken, outspokenly gay physician from Quebec who who pointed this out. But of course, that narrative is drowned out. Mm -hmm. Well, it is tyranny in disguise in the name of health and love. Tim, I'm going to give you the last word because we're out of time. Um, what would uh, what would your word of encouragement be? I mean, this is you know you've based on what you've been through and the diagnosis of Andre, which is uh, which which is you know it, it's a it's a reality check for people. What word of encouragement might you be able to give our our listeners? They might be pastors, leaders, teachers, lawyers, doctors, housewives. W what can we say to God's people as we as we confront this in our time? Yeah. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? So go make disciples and he'll be with us to the end of the age. And so that's great comfort. Um, the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ and, and the kingdom that he's building. And so that gives us such confidence. And we've seen that what, what they have meant for evil, God meant for good. Mm -hmm. And I've never witnessed a time in the life of our church when people have, have grown to love God more, to more faithfully serve him. Uh, to have a greater commitment in their life to his lordship over all things. I've never seen this many people come to know the Lord, be, be saved, be baptized. Our, our church is exploding, and, and just like in, in a good way, exploding in terms of numbers. Uh, and, and every other faithful church that I know that has not turned people away. Um, it's not like we're, we're, we're compelling people against their will to come and, and to worship with us. We're just having our doors open. And we've seen God move and God work. And so I'm... I'm, I'm pleased, even though the state of our country seems grim, mm -hmm. uh, but the state of Christ's kingdom uh, goes forth. And so for that, you know, we mm -hmm. can all rejoice and, and, and keep our hands to plow and keep moving forward. Amen. Mm -hmm. Well, Pastor Tim, thank you for being with us. We're inspired by your faith and example. And uh, we, we pray for you and the family. We were praying for you and the family. And um, thank you for standing faithfully for the truth of the gospel in this tough time andre we're uh, equipped and um we're also deeply inspired and encouraged by what you do because without those who actually are going to stand in the gap i mean i see these lawyers today christian lawyers are kind of uh, they're they're a form of mediator there it's uh, the lesser magistrate here it's a kind of last line of defense and um and what you do as you intervene in all kinds of situations um and uh, defend the truth and stand on the sovereignty of God, even in the secular courts, so that we can recognize what the true background of our own constitution and history is, is so critically important. So we've got two faithful men on the show today. What a blessing to, to have a slightly extended podcast today. 
We're going to leave it there. We'll be back uh, next week on the podcast for Cultural Reformation. And we'll sign off, as we always do, reminding you that from him and through him and to him are all things. We'll talk to you next week.